Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the What's Old is New Again edition, maybe the new What's Old is Again edition. Anyways, it's Friday, April 29th, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Edmonton Journal's opinion page editor, and this week I have the great treat of being back in the hosting chair with me in my favorite newsroom studio to help keep me on track. We've got health reporter Keith Gerine. Hi, Sarah. And Paula Simon, city columnist. Welcome back. Thank you very much. And I am delighted to introduce one of the newest members of the journal's reporting team and uh, and Emma Graney, who's making her <laughs> debut on the podcast this week. Hello, Emma. G'day. How's it going? Going very well. Thank you. So the legislature is on a constituency break, so we'll venture ever so slightly outside the dome, too. Our topics this week revolve around Washington, anniversaries, and maybe, if we have time, Sex. I know you're all. That's what we all want. Where we all. Everyone's <laughs> mind goes there right away. But believe me, we don't. We, we'll not necessarily go in that order. As, since I love special occasions, why don't we start with anniversaries? I just mentioned one. Emma, can you remind us why May fifth is so significant in Alberta? Absolutely, May fifth, big day in Alberta. Um, it was the day, of course, that NDP toppled forty-four years of progressive conservative government in this fair province of yours, and the rest of Canada looked down and went, "What just happened?" Alberta, what? <laughs> and Alberta did that too, right? That's right, absolutely. Yeah. I think all of us, we were all looking at it ourselves going, wow, we thought maybe, but to actually see it become reality was quite the thing. So the mood a year ago, Paula and Keith, can you compare the mood a year ago to what we feel today one year later? Well, what a difference a year makes. I mean, a year ago, I think depending on your political perspective, it was either shock and awe and, you know, a, a gasping of disbelief or uh, a celebration of great rejoicing. And certainly, I remember being down at the legislature the day that Rachel Notley swore in her cabinet, and it was like the greatest street party ever. You know, so the party is over. It's been a year that has been, I think, a very hard one for many, many people in Alberta. The collapse in oil prices has not just been devastating for a government trying to govern in the face of a $10 billion disappearing revenue stream, but also for a lot of Albertans. And so I think it's been a very sobering year for everyone as you realize that the exhilaration or the, you know, the, the shock of, of that election victory uh, has given way to some pretty harsh uh, realpolitik realities. Yeah, I mean, even Brian Jean has has admitted it's not a real good time to govern right now, right? And uh, it, I mean, it was never going to stay the same. Those days of euphoria, you know, when the, the swearing-in happened, that big carnival atmosphere at the legislature, you know, that, that was a, a nice moment. But of course, it was never going to stay there. It's hard to govern. It's especially hard to govern when you have $30 oil. Emma, you had a chance to talk to Premier Notley about her year. What did she say about how it's gone? Yeah, basically, I mean, the big challenge, as she called it, was, of course, the oil price drop. Um, it did hit everything in the province. And, and for her, she said that that made it very challenging because she can't roll out or her government can't roll out some of the promises it had made um, during the election. Um, also, it's not going to be able to financially meet its budgetary promises either. But she did say that she was incredibly proud of her her new shiny government and how they've performed as a caucus and she thinks they've really stepped up to the plate in terms of how how quickly they kind of conquered that steep steep learning curve it's been interesting for me as someone who watched notley as an opposition mla uh see her how she's moved into her, her role as premier how do you feel she has changed or has she changed in her 
in her time. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. There's definitely been a change of tone, right? Yeah, she behaves differently in press conferences and in question period. Uh, there's been a change in a moderation, I would say, of policies, right? We've seen a little bit of that with pipelines, pipelines that she wasn't too supportive of before. Now, eh, maybe they're not so bad, right? Uh, the Misericordia Hospital is another example, right? That was a, a hospital that the NDP demanded must be rebuilt right away. They said that as an opposition party. Now, with uh, you know facing a ten billion dollar deficit, Misericordia isn't such a priority anymore. So it's true, uh, I don't think it I've is, heard it about is it. right. So some of that, of course, is is due to reality that you know thirty dollar oil, as we mentioned, uh, kind of limits what you can do. But I think part of it is also just making that transition from an opposition party to a government. Right, as an opposition party, you can say whatever you want, and it does not make a difference. You can stomp around and scream and say things that don't actually add up at the end of the day and it doesn't matter but as the government it's a little more sobering now right things you say things you do do actually matter they do actually affect people's lives and i think natalie has has actually made that transition fairly well right she seems very comfortable in the premier's chair i can't necessarily say the same thing for her entire government though yeah i i think it's a really important point because you have to remember she wasn't the leader of the opposition i mean it was she was the leader of the fourth party, and she hadn't even been leader of the New Democrats all that long. So I think it's really quite remarkable the way she has stepped up onto the national stage. We saw it most, uh, especially when the NDP had their national convention here, but we saw it again more recently when she was in Kananaskis and meeting with Trudeau and his cabinet there. I think that she has really kind of assumed naturally and quite gracefully that position of dominance and looking like she's in charge. I, I think, as Keith says, it's been a lot harder for some of her MLAs who were very green. I mean, we have to remember, these are people who basically ran, you can't even call them sacrifice candidates. They, they, they ran as symbolic candidates in absolutely no expectation that they would win seats. And suddenly they're not just in caucus, but for some of them, they're right into cabinet, into senior level portfolios. And so I, I think, you know, we have to remember that she only had three other colleagues who had any time in the legislature. So it's it's tough to captain a team that's that's all rookies. Yeah, how would you would you give them a what grade would you give them if you were, you know, assessing it as an educator looking at your students? You know, we we talked about this a little bit earlier. And you know, I, I think initially I said a B minus. I'm sort of havering now between a B minus and a C plus, thinking maybe oh. the B minus was too generous. Good. But you know, wow. but it's it, good thing we didn't wait an hour. It's like the price of oil; <laughs> it just keeps going down and down and no, down. No, you know, okay. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll stick with B minus, and I will say that I think it is important to remember the things that they have accomplished, which sometimes we forget. You know, the Prentice government got voted out for a lot of good reasons, including things like, you know, cuts to education, cuts to post-secondary, um, things that were really going to be extremely difficult on Albertans in a, in a time when we are facing a stalled economy. And I think that they have done well to stand by public education, to stand by post-secondary, to say that we're going to go ahead with capital plans, we're going to build infrastructure now when labor costs are low and when labor is available. Uh, and, and it's tough to, to be brave enough to stick that course. I think they've been quite clever, too, in 
uh, recruiting a lot of respected outsiders, academics like Andrew Leach, uh, people like David Dodge, the former you know head of the Bank of Canada, Paul Booth, another academic who's you know Dave Mowat from ATB. So they've been very clever about bringing in people who have gravitas and national respect to sort of give cover to some mm. of their policies. That that's there have been an awful lot of shots on their own goal. Right. Emma, now you also, if, as part of your work, leading up to a fantastic insight piece that'll be in the oh, paper. It's online it. now Thank and on Saturday. But you, you talk to some of the opposition people. Do you think they would be uh, grading the same on the same curve as Paula? Uh, Brian Jean and Rick McIver, I asked them both straight out. You guys were never going to be BFFs with the NDP. You were never going to go on dates, you know, have happy little movie dates or anything like that or matching tattoos or anything. Was it as bad as you thought? And I really love that image, by the way. And them having like a set of like, yeah, matching neck tattoos or something. That'd if they great. ever do decide to do mm-hmm. that, I hope they let us know so I we can send so. Sean to get some great Absolutely. photos. Yeah. Um, but I did ask them that and they both said without hesitation, it's been worse than we thought it was. Obviously, that's the job of the opposition to say it's been horrible, terrible and the sky is falling. Um, I don't think either of them would give the NDP a passing grade. But, you know, I don't think they've had such great years either. I mean, Brian Jean had to step into the leader role very quickly after the whole Danielle Smith floor crossing, you know, more floor crossings than a square dance in Pinocchio kind of moment. That's right, yes. Um, That's a great line. Who uh, that? (laughs) That's an award-winning line. Uh, But, you know, I think for Jean it's been a difficult – it's been a very difficult year too because – He's had to lead a caucus of people who didn't know him. He's come into the party as an outsider from federal politics. He's had to deal with a lot of very difficult people in his party base, not in the caucus, but sort of the yahoos outside the party who seem to be intent on making the Wild Rose look as ridiculous as possible. And it's been difficult for him, I think, to ride herd on some of that. And, you know, they lost that by-election in Calgary that I think was really theirs to win. It didn't show great momentum for them. So, you know, I'd probably give him a B minus two. And for Rick McIver, oh, the Tories have not had a good year. The Conservatives need to figure out what kind of party they are. Are they going to be a party that lets someone like Craig Chandler speak for them publicly? And, and I think that, you know, as the Conservatives try to figure out if they're a progressive party that tries to have a center coalition or if they're going to try and outflank the wild rose on the right, uh, in the meantime, I think they've been a totally ineffectual presence in the legislature and so you know whereas Notley maybe didn't have an A plus year I don't think that her opponents you know have anything much to crow about this year either. Mm -hmm. Keith where do you think the NDP need to need to go or what do you think we will let me rephrase that question for you. Keith where do you think we will see the NDP go in their sophomore year? You know it's a it's a good question they're they I think actually had a lot of successes this year implementing much of their their campaign agenda. The opposition would say probably they shouldn't have implemented quite as much of it. So that was successful, but there were some rookie mistakes. There, there definitely were some rookie mistakes. At least that's how they're claiming or explaining it, that they, these were mistakes of inexperience and, and not corruption. But we're now at a year in. I don't think that washes anymore. I think the rookie mistakes are over. So they are going to have to show a higher level of sophistication this year. There can't be like what happened at the start of this session where they basically almost botched an opening vote for the, for the, <laughs> right. de- for the deputy, deputy chair of committees. They looked really bad doing that. And some of the fundraisers that, uh, that Notley's been a part of, right? Yep. Little things like that. Right. They, they can't have that 
sort of stuff happening in year two, right? So for anyone who wants a bit more of a review on the first year, our uh, colleague Stuart Thompson has produced a video with some of our uh, press gallery regulars, Paula Graham and our uh, old friend Miriam Ibrahim, looking back on the year that was. So I will recommend that on the weekend you search that out online. Let's change topics because for most of our the first year, it seemed like Notley was going to take a different tack than her predecessors when it came to Alberta's well-worn path to Washington, D.C. And that all changed this week when the premier headed off to the U.S. Capitol. Um, it gave me a crazy sense of deja vu because didn't we talk a lot about trips to Washington when yeah. I was previously hosting yeah. this podcast? Mr. Stelmack goes to Washington. Yeah. Ms. Redford goes to yeah, Washington. Everybody went to Washington. But... Emma, why did Rachel Notley decide now is the time to go to Washington D.C.? And I believe you just got off a phone call with her. So, what did she say about what they've actually what she's accomplished there? Um, the big selling point was the climate change plan. Um, apparently, well, according to the premier, it went down very well in Washington. It is an interesting time, even as she acknowledged to be there because, of course, they're in the middle of this whole campaigning political kerfuffle shall we say down in these states right now um she said she met with a lot of industry leaders a lot of a, a lot of political high ups i guess you you might call them and she's pretty convinced that now they're getting a sense that alberta perhaps isn't the place it once was and is taking some real steps to address climate change and maybe is a great place to uh to invest do you think she actually has anything different to sell though paula than her predecessors because our, graham did a column pulling out snippets from old press releases where it just sounded so much the same. It, the it, message sounded it, so it, similar. It does sound so similar. I mean, this is this is the message that Ed Stelmack tried to sell. This is the message that Alison Redford tried to sell. It's a hard message to sell because every time a duck lands on a tailings pond, um, every time the temperature goes up, it, it is not easy to convince people that we've made substantive changes to the way we produce our energy. Because in all honesty, we haven't made them yet. We've talked about making them. But, you know, it's it's not like when Notley came to power magically, uh, everything got pretty and re-greened in Fort McMurray. So it's a very similar songbook from which she is singing. And the problem always is, you know, here in Alberta, we think we're pretty important. And at the end of the day, we have 4 million people here. And America is full of cities that have more than 4 million people in them. I mean, we are not as big a power player on the international stage as we like to think that we are. So every time a premier from here goes to Washington, D.C., they take some mid-level meetings with people who I'm sure have some degree of power and influence. But right now, I mean, you know, Malcolm Mays drew a, a very pointed cartoon for us this week that showed, you know, Notley trying to come in with sort of happy, happy talk as the as the Republicans and Democrats train their, you know, their sort of uh, their, cannons, their boat yes. guns on each other. You know, I don't I think this is the sort of thing she has to do. She has to do it as much for domestic consumption as anything else. It's it's sort of a rite of passage for an Alberta premier. But I think people in Washington, D.C. are a wee bit distracted right now. Um, Those darn primaries. Emma, since we have the benefit of you covering the Saskatchewan legislature up until very recently, I'd love to get a sense of how common was it for Premier Brad Wall to make trips to, well, 
hither and yond. I don't know. <laughs> uh, did did he go to DC a lot? Like he making went, Saskatchewan's case? Uh, he went every now and again, but I mean, it's different too in Saskatchewan. Um, the SAS party government, I think, had spent something in the range of three million dollars between two thousand and nine and two thousand and fourteen to pay a lobbying firm in the states to lobby those people. Probably similar people to to the ones that Notley met with. I, I don't know that for sure. I have no factual backing, Brad Wall. Mm. Please don't call. <laughs> um, but that was kind of seemed to be the route that they took. And it's interesting um, that you made the point about Alberta only having 4 million people. Well, Saskatchewan only has 1 million people in change. So I would argue it's an even smaller deal if they went there. Of course, Saskatchewan would not see it that way. No. Again, Brad, police don't call. Yeah. <laughs> um, but every now and again, I think every premier does feel that need to sell their message on the international stage. But I think a lot of the time it is often for local consumption rather than trying to make an actual difference because let's face it, there's really not much that you can do. It also has to do with the fact that America doesn't think about us very much. They think about Justin Trudeau, you know, being pretty um, and and cuddling pandas and all. But how much the average American policymaker or politician thinks about Canada is, I think, disproportionate to the amount of time we spend thinking about them. So there's also another uh, Alberta leader who was out and about this week. Uh, Joe Cece, the finance minister, was in New York. Emma, what was he doing in New York? Uh, he was in Toronto and he was in New York and he was trying to, um, he was trying really hard to get that credit rating back up. Uh, didn't work at all. Moody's said, no, no, no son, not going to happen. Yeah, because what happened? Moody's this week downgraded. What were we and where did we go? We got a couple of downgrades uh, from different agencies, from AAA down to AA+, plus, which still isn't a bad rating, um, but it's not the shiny AAA that Alberta once had. So CC kind of made that trip to kind of say, hey, yeah, okay, we're not doing that well. Um, sure, there's going to be a deficit, but look, we're keeping people in work and we have this plan, we have this jobs plan, it's going to be awesome. I'm paraphrasing, he probably didn't say those words exactly. <laughs> no. Um, but it didn't. And he probably uh, had a PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he did say yesterday, well, it didn't work. Uh, Moody's, they just see things differently to us. But he did say that some of his meetings with investors and bankers and some of the other power players there, they did see the Alberta side, well, the NDP government's side of what they're doing and think that it makes perfect sense to keep on investing in public services rather than cutting jobs at this particular point in time. Okay. Well, I think that we will end our travels and come back home because I did want Keith you to give us a little bit of a briefing on uh, on the the sex issue we talked about earlier, yeah, but but specifically, yeah. it's actually a very important public health sure, issue, and that's yeah. why I wanted to talk about it. You went to a news conference this week where we got some information about sexually transmitted infections. So, what did they say? And and then maybe Paula, you can chime in about you know why this actually matters uh, that it's not just you know something to laugh about. Yeah, it, it was a bit stunning, actually. I mean, we've known for a while that Alberta's rates of, of STIs have, have not been great. We've had some of the worst rates in the country, and they have been climbing, mostly incrementally in recent years. Uh, and then all of a sudden, 2015 comes along, and that's what the news conference was about, to share those statistics. And, and there's this stunning spike in cases of gonorrhea and of syphilis in Alberta. In, in the case of gonorrhea, cases up 80% over the previous year to levels not seen since the 1980s, if you can believe that. Uh, and uh, women in particular, urban Aboriginal women, a, a, a really at risk population for that particular disease. 
And in the case of syphilis, the cases have doubled uh, from 2014 to 2015. And men who have sex with men, again, uh, carrying most of those cases. So that's a very at-risk population. When asked why this has happened, uh, the public health people said, well, we think it's the rise of social media, these particular sites that allow for and encourage very anonymous sexual encounters. And because that your partners are anonymous when you are uh, diagnosed with a disease and you don't know who your partners were, it's very difficult for the public health system to track those people down before they pass it on to somebody else. So that explanation has had a lot of debate. Some people say, yeah, that makes sense. Other people are saying, no, wait a minute. Uh, Christopher Wells from the University of Alberta, for example, is saying, no, the real problem is a lack of sexual education. Well, you know, I think to blame, so it's, it's, you know, it's like blaming cars because it makes it easier to get to people with whom to have sex. I mean, to blame to blame social media is, I think, a bit facile. We've had a problem with syphilis in particular in this province, a rising problem for years. And you may remember back when Ron Leipert was health minister, he very controversially canceled a whole public education plan that Alberta Health Services had at the beginning of the syphilis epidemic right. to roll this out. This was back in the 2009 Yeah, and, and, yeah. and Leipert's attitude was basically... I mean, he all but said in the legislature that people who get these diseases deserve it because they have irresponsible lifestyles and that, you know, severely normal Albertans who have nice sex don't have this happen to them. And it is certainly true that people who are on the social margins, uh, urban Aboriginal women being, a, a, you know, a very sad example, are more likely. But I think there's another really important factor here. And curiously, I think it has to do with how well we now treat HIV AIDS. I mean, when I was coming of age as a, as a young woman, AIDS was a fatal diagnosis. And safe sex was, you know, what people did because the consequences were death. And so I, I think especially when we see the transmission rates for men having sex with men uh, for syphilis skyrocketing like this, it suggests that these men are not practicing safe sex because they no longer fear, you know, imminent death from from HIV AIDS and so in some ways when I think I think when the the horror of AIDS diminished in the public imagination I think that a lot of people became much more casual about not practicing safe sex because the stakes didn't seem so high and and gonorrhea and syphilis are treatable if if you find out where they're devastating is if you don't know that you have syphilis and you're carrying a child and you know that can lead to terrible uh, disability and death for the baby. Right, that was one of the issues in 2009 was there was a, a, a disturbing number of infants who died born with congenital syphilis who died. I yeah. Think. yeah. So these are, you know, these are serious problems not just because of the infections, but because what the infections suggest about a larger social casualness about safe sex. I mean, the problem isn't anonymous hookups. The problem is unsafe anonymous hookups. And of course, the more unsafe anonymous hookups you have, uh, the greater the vectors uh, of disease. So, you know, uh, does this correlate with, with poverty, with desperation, with social media use? Maybe. But I think it also correlates with people forgetting just how deadly uh, STDs can be. I think this is something we're going to want to keep an eye on because, as they mentioned, it, Edmonton was one of the, the, the hot, yeah, high. highest growth rate and the highest numbers in the entire province in yeah, the Edmonton so I, zone. I yeah. hope this is something that we and public health officials can explore more and, and figure out that, what to do to stop. Yeah, now that Karen Grimsrud is back, I think, um, you know, because she was a great loss to the province, I think her return maybe heralds a more serious look um, by Alberta Health at, at these issues.
Well, on that note, let us move and conclude to Good Stuff from the Gallery, our weekly segment where we share something that we've discovered and, and want to share, usually with a political connection. Not always. We can go all over the place. Keith, do you want to start us off? Yeah, well, it's already been referenced. It's a fantastic piece by our new reporter, Emma Graney, uh, on a year of Notley and the steep learning curve that they've had. And uh, uh, paired with that, a, an excellent long column by Graham Thompson, also looking back over the year and, and what the NDP might have in store for us in the, in the next few years to come and potentially in the next election campaign. Okay, we'll throw up links to that. Paula, what would you like to share? I'm going to share a, a very important piece of theater about race relations and youth violence, uh, which is West Side Story on now at the Citadel. It's the uh, closing piece of their 50th anniversary season. It's a really crackerjack production, uh, which does, of course, Im explore important social and political themes and has a fantastic score. So uh, I, I was there for opening night last night, and I would highly recommend uh, that you top off your May with a trip to the Citadel. You're going to be singing in the office all day, aren't you? I went to be in America. Everything's <laughs> getting in America. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sing my good stuff from the gallery. But I want to suggest something that has inspired me as the opinion page editor. To, it's a new thing on my bucket list. The Guardian had a great satirical op-ed feature uh, video with Patrick Stewart. They managed to get him to do this piece inspired by a classic Monty Python skit and it features him as the leader of of uh, of England lobbying for the a conservative plan to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights in favor of the UK Bill of Rights is all the backstories all there but what's just awesome is it's Patrick Stewart doing an op-ed you know a satirical video op-ed I love him so I, I mean, would if you have Patrick Stewart and Monty Python in one place it's... I know I, I this is now my new my new dream as the op-ed pages to have him do a video for us so we'll see if I can make that happen Emma I'll throw up the links to that by the way you must watch it oh yeah Emma. um what you know what Watership Down speaking of political themes yeah I'd never read it before really isn't that disgusting no so, I mean well, there's a lot of books out there but yeah maybe being a little harsh on myself but <laughs> um yeah I'm about halfway through and people keep asking me have I gone to the bit yet and I don't know what that's about I know there's been some kind of communist rabbit warren happen <laughs> um but it's springtime I've seen lots of bunnies around the legislative assembly building so now is the time to read Watership Down again or for the first time I'm loving it it's a bit harsh. Ooh. Yes, thank you. And I'd like to just, I think we need to give a shout out to Emma's panda outfit. For those oh, of yeah. you listening and who aren't watching the video, you can see that, uh, you know, she's... It's she's a panda made of um, sparkly sequins yes. in celebration um, of pandas. Because, of course, they had that uh, announcement at the Calgary Zoo. That's right. The, we're getting pandas. Deficit whatever, but we're getting freaking pandas. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a cost to that, right? It's not a free ride. $10 million. $10 million. $10 million to build a panda hut. Can you put a price on panda happiness? Yeah, though? maybe that's don't use the word question. panda hut. That's the, uh, that's the <laughs> Chinese food place. So. <laughs> Awkward. Well, that is it for this week. Thanks to Paula, Emma, and Keith for joining me this week and to videographer Sean Butts for filming our conversation and helping us through all of our technical difficulties earlier so that we can share segments online at edmontonjournal.com. You can hear previous episodes of the podcast there on edmontonjournal.com or through the Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. You can subscribe. You'll get the press gallery there waiting for you as soon as uh, Keith, who's going to handle the production side of things this week, can post it for us. We'll convene some form of the press gallery. We'll con convene again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.